sweet sweeper, but sooner or later you dance with the reaper. <laughs> The Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host Gareth Green and joining me as always is the wild stallion himself, Andrew Raphael. But you have sunk my battleship. (laughs) And for this week's episode we're going beyond the abyss and into the afterlife as we take a trip down under, and I don't mean Australia, with everyone's favourite dumb rockers, Bill and Ted. But do we have a hell of a time, or simply a hellish time? Find out after the trailer. I have a feeling we're about to embark upon a most unprecedented expedition. Once they made history. I must see to it that you die. Now, they are history. Bill and Ted are dead. Welcome to hell. It's the Grim Reaper, dude. How's it hanging, Death? But they're having one hell of a time. This is not what I expected this place to look like at all. We got totally lied to by our album covers, man. Taking in the sights. Not bad, dude. We totally knew a guy got one of those in his bucket of chicken. Making new friends. Excuse us, dude. But is there any way we can get back? You may challenge me to a contest. J7. You have sunk my battleship. Excellent! Best two out of three. What? Enjoying the family. No way! Invading the present. I totally possess my dad. Battling <laughs> the future. You metal, dude! Excuse us, but your shoes are untied. Virgil's Aeneid, Milton's Paradise Lost, Dante's Inferno, these depictions of hell are but a speck in the shadow of towering evil that is Hewitt's Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Starring Keanu Reeves of Speed, The Matrix and John Wick fame, and Alex Winter of Bill and Ted fame, this second adventure for a lovable duo sees them get into a whole host of crazy hijinks, such as dying and confronting the source of all evil. So Andy, that is my intro to Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Is this a film that you have seen prior to this podcast? Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we clearly picked this one because at the time of recording, Bill and Ted... I forgot what the third one's called. Bill and Ted... Face the Music. Face the Music, that was it. Uh, Yeah, Bill and Ted Face the Music is supposed to be uh, coming out around the time that we're supposed to release this episode. But with the current situation, who knows? I think it's been pushed back to the 28th. It was put forward a week and then pushed back two weeks. It's only actually a week later than its original release date. I think because the release date fell on the same day, well, hopeful release of Tenet. So they decided to push it back another week. Mm -hmm. But actually was, I think, only a week later than the original one anyway. So it's been moved around the schedules a bit, as have all films at this time. Yeah, It will remain to be seen if um, this film does come out when we... uh, (laughs) When we release this episode. Well, yeah, so either this episode is very well placed to coincide with the release of Bill and Ted Face the Music. Yeah. Otherwise, it'll be about six months beforehand. 
Or a year. <laughs> so it's more of a, a nice little primer on the journey towards Bill and Ted. Yeah, yeah. And I will say as well, Bill and Ted's bogus journey. I think this is one that we agreed on very early on when we first started Best yeah. Forgotten Movies. This, this was one that we wanted to do. We both, I think from our conversations before, have very similar relationships with this film. It's like, I will say this was my introduction to Bill and Ted was bogus yeah, journey, yeah. more so than excellent adventure ever. Mm-hmm. So I've been very eager to get into this film because I, in many ways, know spoilers here but i kind of really enjoyed this probably more than excellent adventure yeah i think this was on our original list and it was originally scheduled for our limited series in 2018 yes we never got around to it i think it was scheduled to be at episode six or seven and um we only got as far as three so (laughs) (laughs) we didn't we didn't get around to it so um yeah but this is a film which I have a a very long relationship with. In fact, it goes all the way back to the release of the film itself because I've no idea why, but this is one of the very first films I ever saw at the cinema. (laughs) So this is where your cinematic journey began. This is its inception. This is where your like conscious memory of cinema begins here. A lot of people say things like Jurassic Park was the film that opened the door to me. Oh, what was it for you? Oh, no, it was Jaws or Star Wars. For you, it's Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Yeah. I can think of no better film. It explains a lot as well. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure this is the first non-Disney film that I saw at the cinema, because I don't think it's the very first film I saw at the cinema, but I'm pretty sure I saw Rescuers Down Under at the cinema. Yeah. I saw Beating the Beast at the cinema. They're definitely the earliest, and this is within that. Yeah. Uh, I'm not quite sure when it came out in the UK. I know it came out July 91 in the States, but I'm not sure whether there was a delay, as there was usually. Yeah, back then there used to be a much more of a delay for films being released yeah. in the UK to America. I mean, it's not yeah. so bad now, but at some points it could be like six-month difference. So I'm not sure whether I saw it late 91 or early 92. I'll have to do a little bit more digging to see when the actual release was. Yeah. Now, I remember going to see the, uh, like, not to get into the stats and facts now, but I know that 101 Dalmatians was released around about the same time as Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, the uh, re-release of 101 Dalmatians. And I remember going to see that film at the cinema for that re-release. So, 91, I would have been about four years old, five years old. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it seems like we have a lot to talk about today as well. It goes back yeah. very long. I, I wouldn't say that with me, my first uh, watching of Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey was when it was released on VHS. And my uncle, who was you know very much, and he still very much is a, a rocker of that era, it was his VHS and me and my brothers nicked it off him. And I, don't, I think we've still got it now. <laughs> so uh, that was my first introduction to Bill and Ted. And it, it was with this film, and I didn't actually see Excellent Adventure until years later. Oh, that's same for me. Same for me. This is the one I always return to. If I've got a hankering to watch Bill and Ted, it's Bogus Journey that I watch. Well, it's a strange film for me because I say that I saw this film at the cinema, but in actual fact, I only saw the first half hour at the cinema. Yeah. All right, what happened? This is the only film where I have ran out of the theatre um due to being so frightened by it i do not know (laughs) what possessed my parents deciding to take me to see this film because again i was only four years old (laughs) i may not even have been four years old i may have been three years old i'm not quite sure exactly i got as far 
as Bill and Ted being taken up the cliff. Now, I've got to say, we've spoken about this often on the podcast before, but you have a fear of robots disguised as people. Yeah. In film, that does creep you Mm -hmm. out massively. And you've spoken about it on this podcast before. And I'm constantly recommending you films that are always along that type of line because I know they're going to creep you the fuck out. Yeah. This is where it's begun for you. This is the inception of that fear. It begins with Bill and Ted's bogus journey. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So go on. So take me further. Take me through the steps. You're sat in the cinema. You're glued to your seat watching these bad robot others take Bill and Ted up Vasquez Rock. And that's not a euphemism, by the way. That's literally what happens. (laughs) Yeah. um, I remember it quite clearly because I remember what cinema it was. It was the... uh, Torture house. Yeah. UCI (laughs) cinema in Preston. And it was a, a, a cinema that we never used to go to very often. We used to go to the uh, the Warner Brothers in Bury, which is no longer there anymore. No. It's opposite the Asda that's there. A little bit of a geography trivia for all of our fans it from is. America here. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, the UCI cinema. And I think that it's that thing that started at the beginning of the film because you have that whole schoolroom sequence. And obviously, I've got no idea what's going on anyway, because I'm four years old watching this thing. Of course. I recognise Bill and Ted, because I think they were kind of around uh, in pop culture at the time. They are on the yeah. telly. I'm pretty sure the animated series was already out at the time. Yeah, I was going to mention about what the time frame was for the animated series to this film as well, but we'll get into that later. And so, yeah, I saw Bill and Ted, and then um, all of a sudden, they take their faces off. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> That image and the other subsequent images, I think the thing that put me off entirely and made me walk out of the theatre, well, ran out of the theatre, was the bit just before they take them up the rocks when they open their chests. Yeah. When they go, I'm metal, dude. I'd had enough by that point. Yeah. And for quite a long time, that was the end of my relationship with Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. I did not see the film for an awful long time just because I was so frightened (laughs) of it. Apart from In Your Nightmares. (laughs) <laughs> in my oh god i had so many nightmares about this film see i did as well when i saw this film as well i was really quite young and i mean i wasn't four years old running out of the cinema screaming kind of young but i was i'd say around about six or seven and the part with the robots never really scared me but there is plenty in this film that i found terrifying even then i would say that the moment just after that with the introduction of death which was actually everybody of our generation that's how they got into the seventh seal that's everybody's first introduction into the seventh seal. Yeah. But when you first see Death and he's in the distance and then they look and he's gone and then behind them, that scared the shit out of me. And I was constantly thinking, that's going to happen to me. <laughs> that's why I'm going to see Death and then suddenly he's going to be behind me and drag me away like those evil creatures out of Ghost. <laughs> That's the thing as well, like, for the longest time, my dad thought that that was the thing that scared me. Oh, really? I think I ran out at that point. Yeah. And my dad was uh, laughing, as he usually does with things like that. (laughs) But for the longest, longest time, he thought that I was scared of the Grim Reaper, which did not bother me whatsoever. It was these android Bill and Ted things that kept showing you their parts that was absolutely terrifying for me yeah so and you probably got out early as well because they lean into that throughout the entire film oh yeah and i think it was a good five seven years until i saw it again i think and even then i had to close my eyes at the bits where they showed their robot bits that reminds me of me with terminator 2 i saw terminator 2 very shortly after it came out and i cried like a baby at the end of the film when arnold schwarzenegger died when the t800 went into the uh the, the liquid metal yeah and 
I think up until I was about 10 years old, I'd watch Terminator 2 all the way through and then just get up and leave the room when it got to the point where you're going to the, the molten metal. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't watch it. So I, I understand where you're coming from, from that from yeah. that place. But yeah, that, I think it was about five, seven years later. I can't remember ex- exactly. I think it must have been on the TV or something. Yeah. That I watched it again in full. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> Were you ever part of that scene in terms of the music and any, any appreciation for hard rock and rock and roll? Well, not rock and roll. It's not really like not living in the 1950s. Yeah. <laughs> not really, because I think I wasn't of that generation. Now. I think you yeah. have to be a, a teenager in the late in mid to late 80s to really embrace that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I often dabble in it. I mean, especially nowadays. I think even back then, obviously, I was into my um, musical theatre. Of course. Which uh, was around that time, which we've spoken about. We've already spoken about the Rum Tum Tugger, Andy. Yep. And then, yeah, things like the Beatles and Genesis. I was very much into sort of my arty rock when I was very small. <laughs> you which... were the most pretentious four-year-old I've ever oh, heard totally. of. <laughs> totally. I, I, you um... know, like people say like, oh, well, I was into the Beatles before they were famous. Yeah. It's like, well, you can say I was into the Beatles before I wore pants. Oh, totally. <laughs> I went to a drama group once, and I think this must have been about 96, so a little bit later on, but we had this thing in the drama group where everybody brought in a song for us to look at the lyrics at and 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 you brought suppers ready by genesis well no i didn't exactly <laughs> do that but so for example somebody else brought wannabe by the spice girls yeah and i brought i am the walrus <laughs> which absolutely delighted my drama teacher but oh. puzzled everybody else in the group i wish you would have brought like frank zapper or something that song where he's talking about making love to kitchen utensils <laughs> <laughs> wasn't quite that far advanced but you know people listening back to john lennon going i'm the Eggman," and the, all these kids just going what the fuck is this <laughs> uh, my teacher absolutely loving it so yeah, yeah that's basically where i was uh musically at that time but no not really i again uh, to be honest i've only really dabbled in this kind of stuff in recent years especially with things like um van halen and yeah. extreme uh, I've only really got into that this year, actually. I was into Extreme at the time, to be honest. Yeah. But this is all because of my uncle. My uncle was very much, and still is very much into this era of rock as well. And having somebody in your life like that as well, as such, like I was as well. I was into bands like Faith No More. I think this was actually my introduction to Faith No More. <laughs> so I have a lot to thank this film for. I think as well it ends with a song, God Gave Rock and Roll to You, which is probably the best introduction to that era of rock for kids out yeah. there as well. My, I, can, I always talk about it, but my four-year-old loves that song. Yeah. And I think that's like the gateway song into the world of like 80s rock, 90s rock. But yeah, so I, I guess just before we do get into that, though, it's uh, it's time to lay some context about Bill and Ted's bogus journey, of which I will say there is very little context about the making of this film online. I only have a few pieces of trivia that I've managed to find from IMDb looking through that, but it's more so about the making of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, where really the story mm-hmm. about the context lies, how this film got yeah. made. And I understand that you've been looking into that as well before this episode, Andy. So I'm going to hand yeah. it over to you to tell me a little bit about how Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure came to be and what kickstarted this franchise. Okay, so the inception of Bill and Ted starts with the writers, who are Ed Solomon and Chris Matheson. And Chris Matheson is the son of Richard Matheson. So 
Wait. Got a quote. Wait, I did not know that. I knew that Chris Matheson and yep. Ed Solomon were the writers of this. I know that Ed Solomon's the one that's been keeping this franchise alive all these years. Yeah. Stoking the flames of the third film for so long. But I did mm-hmm. not know that Chris Matheson is, did you say, the son of Richard Matheson? The son of Richard Matheson. And he has a part to play in all of this. That's crazy. Yeah. In a way, it makes sense that there's all these little nods to Star Trek, the original series as well. Yeah. It's like a little handoff to his dad. I really like that. And, and it's, I- and it's. I think this is an unprecedented franchise where in all three films, including this new belated sequel, that they've actually had exactly the same writers all the way yeah. through. I don't think there's a single series where that's happened. Mm-hmm. So they were friends in college and Bill and Ted was originally a, a stand-up routine that they had. The idea for the film was more of a, a sketch-based script. So they had these two characters who were these dumb surfer dudes from uh, the valley. And they had all sorts of different scenarios. So it was more sort of like little sketches. And one of the sketches involved the concept of time travel and getting historical figures and taking them out for a, a school project. And it was, in fact, Richard Matheson that suggested that they make an entire film out of this idea. So in a way, we have Richard Matheson to thank for Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Wow, it's weird that you actually say that it was born out of a series of sketches because one of the notes that I actually wrote whilst watching Bogus Journey was that there's a few scenes that work in that film that are just amazing sketches in and of themselves. Yeah. Particularly the one in which death challenges them to a series of games, which... Honestly, you can take wholesale out of that film and it is just a wonderful sketch that works in its own right. Yeah, yeah. So this script was originally picked up in early 87 by Dino De Laurentiis, our old friend. And it was given to, uh, I think he he was first-time director as well, Stephen Herrick. Yeah. Who um, has directed other films of note that we may do on this series eventually? And uh, it was given. I'm not quite sure what the budget was for this film. It seems to vary between 6.5 million to 10 million, but I'm yeah. assuming it's on the lower side. And Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure was filmed in mid 1987, so quite a while before its actual release. And uh, I think they went through a lot of people to get the main parts of Bill and Ted. Yeah. They went through like hundreds and hundreds of people to to find the right people for it. But yeah, it was filmed, I think, in Arizona, actually, the first one, in mid-1987, and it was planned for a 1988 release. Yeah. But DEG, which is the Dino De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, they fell into heavy debt in late 87. Yeah. And actually filed for bankruptcy the following year. So they had to shop the film around to other distributors and this proved to be initially quite difficult because investors were very confused as to the subject matter and lead characters that were involved in the film they they didn't believe that people actually talked like this in real life but they did conduct a test screening with a random test audience that had been pulled from Amal and it was a very, very enthusiastic test audience. And following this test screening, it led to a bidding war of course. between different studios. Yeah. And it eventually fell to Nelson Entertainment, which actually had a few figureheads from the original De Laurentiis group in it. So I imagine that's why they went with them. And uh, coupling up with Orion Pictures, and they bought the film for distribution for one million. Wow, what a steal. Yeah. And the the film was eventually released on February the 17th, 1989. 
and was a uh, a considerable hit. It made um, forty point four million dollars. Yes, based on a uh, probably a sub ten million dollar budget, which is remarkable, really. I do think it tapped into the zeitgeist about like I, I think of the culture back then, the the around rock. And I also think it does something a little bit different than films that normally predict like heavy metal heads. What I like about this and what I'm going to get into is that Bill and Ted are largely unfalteringly wholesome as individuals. Yeah, yeah. And I think that is actually like the opposite of how these hyper characters are normally portrayed, which is why it makes them so endearing as well. This is at a time when... when the rocker and the goth and all that type of thing was becoming to be seen as the outsider and America was beginning to treat them as such. But I actually think that it's the wholesomeness of these characters that really makes them shine through. Yeah, and I think it was the relative uniqueness of yeah. the whole setup, really. like I don't think there's anything you can really compare it to because the, the thing is with Bill and Ted, it often gets lumped in with teen slash stoner comedies Yeah, when in fact it's not really got much to do with any of those. No. And the thing is as well, as much as I love it, it gets roped in with things like Wayne's World and mm-hmm. they just don't have many similarities at all apart from no. the... Um, overall sort of general aesthetics of the main characters but it's still quite separated yeah i don't know it's like stylistically aesthetically those films are completely different as well they i would say brush with some of the same types of influences in the music that they use but that's probably about the depth of it really and i think the other unique thing about it that it inherently invents its own mythos that you can explore and i think this explains why the sequel is so different to the first film this Mm. this idea that a future utopian society has based all their values on these two dumb surfer dudes (laughs) which i think is a a genius idea yeah and the thing is i think that's where it's a quite unique film series that you can literally go anywhere with it because you've got the you've got the time travel element and everything else in between Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be confined to a particular formula and we'll go into this in a little bit when we talk about the development of the sequel Mm -hmm. yeah so it's quite a big hit and i think the um the animated TV series is greenlit shortly afterwards, and that comes yeah. out in 1990. Yeah, I remember the animated TV series. There was that, and there was also the Back to the Future TV series that I yeah. had intertwined in my mind. Strangely, I remember the um, the Bill and Ted one more. I do actually remember seeing that on TV. I remember the Back to the Future one more, weirdly <laughs> enough, but I've, <laughs> I've got like images from both just stuck up yeah. there. But yeah, I remember specific yeah. episodes of the Back to the Future one. And uh, strangely, it's only two seasons, and actually each season was actually undertaken by a different production company but for the first season the characters of Bill and Ted are actually voiced by Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves and it wasn't until they did the second series which was I think yeah done by a different production company who had their eyes on making a live action version of the series the actors who actually starred as live action Bill and Ted in the live action series ended up voicing the animated characters for that second series. So right. the second series of the animated and the very short live action series are pretty much one and the same. I did not know there was a live action series. Yeah, it only lasted seven episodes. So arousing success. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, do you remember the 90s and early noughties period of every time a film would come out and be popular of this type of ilk, like Bill and Ted or Back to the Future, there would be an animated series that would shortly follow for like kids TV, Saturday morning television. Yeah. And one of them I also remember was Dumb and Dumber. Yeah, Dumb and Dumber. Did you ever watch the TV series based on that? I remember that it was was Harry and Lloyd, and then they introduced a third character to the group that was a beaver. (laughs) 
I yeah, remember that. That's all I remember of it. I mean, I'd say the um, precursor to that was probably the real Ghostbusters. I think that's the granddaddy of film tie-in cartoons. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because prior to that, a lot of cartoons in the 80s were more tied to uh, toy brands and things like that. Um, you very rarely got anything animated that was tied into a, a film series. So, mm-hmm. yeah, things like real Ghostbusters. And then, yeah, there was a lot of strange animated tv series in the 90s early 90s especially like there was the ace ventura one as well yeah i remember not liking that one as a kid no no i remember thinking it wasn't jim carrey i liked jim carrey at the time and that wasn't it didn't sound like him to me and then of course all the uh the disney animated series i mean the two that spring to mind most are uh, aladdin and uh, the little mermaid and th- that went throughout the entire series i mean straight up to like atlantis and we still get it now with tangled yeah my daughter watches the tangled tv series series pretty much religiously so it was pretty obvious i think that they were going to make a sequel but the original director stephen herrick did not want to return for the sequel he's quoted as saying that upon reading the script it was almost a parody of a movie that was already a parody yeah but i think within that quote that almost like explains the sequel's genius yeah (laughs) So it's kind of an odd way to not want to do a sequel because Mm -hmm. it's ridiculous in of itself anyway. So I don't quite understand that. I'm quite surprised that he didn't come back considering, one, the increase in budget, of course, but also how inventive and unusual the sequel is as well in comparison to the first film. It's not a carbon copy. It's not repeating, really, the same beats as the previous film. It's got some similar elements, but by and large, it's doing its own thing. And again, I also think that is the genius of this film as well. Although it could have gone very easily the other way. I know that one of the very first drafts of the sequel was actually very similar in structure to the first film. Yeah. Instead of history class, it involved English class and it involved um, going into different literary works like Romeo and Juliet and things like that. Yeah. I imagine they decided very early on that that was not the way to go. Yeah, that's turning it into something far too commercial, really, isn't it? It's a bit of a bankrupt idea, that one. Like, oh, we can do a film for every class. Yeah, pretty much. I think they obviously decided very early on that the scope for this was much bigger than that. Yeah. And yeah, so the final shooting draft was called Bill and Ted Go to Hell. Mm -hmm. And I think it was filmed with that title. And it kept that title for quite a long time before they changed it to Bogus Journey, which is why there's no mention of it being a Bogus Journey in the film. (laughs) (laughs) It was focus grouped out of the film, I believe. Yeah. Because people didn't respond to the Hell title. Yeah. Which I I can understand. Yeah. Although I think I like the title of Bogus Journey because it definitely has a, a, a better relationship relationship with excellent adventure yeah it's a more is a better like variant of that rather than go to hell bogus journey feels like it, it fits to me to be honest and also it's the go to hell part is probably a bit of false advertising as well because they don't go to hell for that much you know for a particularly long period of time in the film no. it's it's definitely a journey no it's more so bill and ted visit the afterlife yeah they go to hell they go to heaven they yeah. possess people for a while and that type of thing they're ghosts It managed to do a lot, I think, as well in that time. Yeah. And once again, Bill and Ted is never free and it's never far away from financial issues. Yeah. So Orion, who had bankrolled the sequel, they were on the verge of bankruptcy months before release. And they ended up selling off a lot of films around this period, which is strange considering how much of a hit Silence of the Lambs had been. Yeah. 
Uh, Ryan didn't last very much longer after this, I don't think. But um, they sold off a lot of films. The 80s cocaine days were over, Andy. Yeah. That's what it was. But um, Canon Films has folded. I know Ryan is next. Miraculously, they actually kept hold of Bill and Ted 2 because they actually had absolute faith in it. So um, this is a film that Orion very much liked. And it does feel very much an Orion film. Yes, it does, yeah. In terms of its creativity and outlandishness. Yeah, so the original director, Stephen Herrick, doesn't return for this film. And they uh, they get a new director called Peter Hewitt, <laughs> who is a British director. Yes. And uh, th- this is his feature directorial debut. Uh, he'd been to the uh, National Film and Television School. Yeah. And he'd made a short film called The Candy Show, which had won a BAFTA award. So following this win, he moved to America and uh, sought his fortune. And this was the first feature film that he uh, directed. So what you're telling me is this was the first step towards Garfield the movie. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I th- I'd say Garfield is unrepresentative of his style, actually. Yeah, I, think. It, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's filmography is like it's got an untold amount of gems buried in it but yeah, yeah. you know, still got films like The Borrowers that I quite enjoy as well yeah yeah visually inventive as well I'd say they're almost like twins because they are stylistically quite similar The Borrowers and Thunderpants yes yeah which I hear is quite a good kids movie Thunderpants never seen it but I've heard that for a film called Thunderpants I remember Empire Magazine said this and also it's covered on Red Letter Media but for a film called Thunderpants it's better than it has any right to be yeah but it, they've all got a similar aesthetic, that kind of out-of-time style. Yes. In a way, I, I would say The Borrowers, Thunderpants, and Mouse Hunt yep. are a very loose trilogy, all set in the same universe. <laughs> I, I get that feeling. It is, like you say, out of time, both classical and modern at the same time. Yeah. For some reason, I always link that type of film straight back to Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the uh, Gene Wilder one, because that feels like a film that's completely out of time to me as well. Yeah. It's obviously more dated now yeah but even so if i try and place it at a time or even a place i'm unable to do so yeah and all these films i always link back to that in my mind yeah so this kind of brings us up to date i mean the only thing i have on the rest of this film is that it was shot over 12 weeks yeah i was about to say (laughs) that i think that's the only thing that i had to add i'd managed to glimpse from imdb trivia i mean i've got a little bit more trivia on the actual film that's not related to the making of it yeah so the building that stands in for bill and ted university is the tillman water reclamation plant in van nuys california and it was also used as starfleet academy in next generation voyager i've got written down here that the beginning of this is very star trek to me it's got this very progressive (laughs) star trek vision of the future i wrote where everybody is united by the universal power of art rather than money or power or that type thing it's all we're united by the universal power of art and i guess the simplistic dumbness of bill inside themselves (laughs) but yeah yeah, i thought soon as i saw that i was like this is star trek i'm watching star trek yeah the only other big trivia point is that the mal that um, the building emporium is is I, in, I is know the, this one is yeah. the same mall that they use for the twin slash lone pine mall in yeah. Back to the Future. I wrote it down in my notes as well before I'd seen that on IMDb trivia that it looked like the same mall. 
So I guess that brings us right up to Bill and Ted's bogus journey. Yeah. So I guess we better start our own journey through this film. So I will say as well, what's your opinion of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? Just before we do get into Bogus Journey. I would say it's a fun film and an enjoyable watch and it's got some interesting ideas. Yeah. And it's still a good film, but I just think that this film is better in pretty much every way. Yeah. Although I would say... It's definitely more accessible. Yeah. Which I think is why there's always this debate over whether Excellent Adventure or Bogus Journey is the better film. Mm-hmm. It's a battle that's raged on ever since the release of <laughs> Bogus Journey. And I definitely sit in the Bogus Journey camp. I am firmly united with yourself on this one. I am in the Bogus Journey camp. And I would say that I still very much enjoy Excellent Adventure. I do yeah. think it's a solid film. But this is the fresher film for me because not only was it my introduction into this series as well and into a lot of the music in this film that I do really still quite enjoy, but also I do think of the two films, it's the more ambitious as well. Yeah, completely. And especially considering its surrealness as well. It's like coming from the previous film into this film, I really like where they try and take it. And it's in a different direction than you would expect. But I I understand now as well that when Ed Solomon's been speaking about Bill and Ted Faced Music, they've been saying that of the two films, this sequel is probably going to be closer to Excellent Adventure than it is Bogus Journey. Mm. Um, So I think where they sit on the matter that they probably lean towards Excellent Adventure as being the better film for them. But I don't know. For me, it's always Bogus Journey. I think the fact that the new film's still going to take elements from Bogus Journey, it's yeah. like going to be an amalgamation of the two in some in some ways. I mean, we've still got Death returning as a character as well. So that's going to be good to see. Yeah, yeah. But I think as comedy sequels go, this m- must be one of the best and most ambitious of all time. Yeah. Because I can't think of another, especially in a comedy genre, another film that is so unlike the first one mm-hmm. and is so ambitious with its ideas. Yeah. Because if you actually break the film down into what it's actually exploring, it's pretty radical, to be honest. It is. It's, it uh, is. it's most atypical. <laughs> and I mean, I will say as well, I give a lot of kudos to Peter Hewitt for the film because of the actual aesthetic and some of the inventiveness in terms of the way that he moves his camera and sets his scenes as well. There's some very simple shots in this film that on this watch through, I noticed and was like, wow, I'd never noticed how complicated that setup was and how easy it fits into the film. Like I think the seance scene with Missy Mm. and when we're first introduced it, we have this camera pan around the room to each character as they speak about who they want to see in the seance. And then the camera pulls out through a window that Bill and Ted are looking through. And it's like, clearly that's a set that's supposed to pull apart, that they've Mm. uh, pushed together in a very Citizen Kane way as the camera's pulled through the middle pane of the glass. Yeah, There's little flourishes like that that you wouldn't notice unless you were looking for them watching the film throughout, where I'm like, yeah, I really like that somebody's put the effort into making this as visually inventive as they can. Yeah, I always get the feeling when watching this film that this is the work of a very hungry director. Yeah, You can tell that this is his first big movie and he's fucking going to nail it. You know, <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, yeah. You know, he's going to pull out all the stops. I mean, to be honest, the only thing I would say that holds the film back a little is the fact that it's still um, 
a fairly low budget affair. It's yeah. like this budget was about twenty million, and given all the things they had to do, there are a couple of bits and bobs here where some of the visual effects are a little bit dodgy, mm-hmm. where you can see where their limitations were. I think as well to go back to it, the seance scene has both a lovely moment like that, a lovely camera move that I really appreciate, but also some mm. really poor visual effects of them. Mm. The bit in which they're just half bodies floating above them is really quite poorly done. Yeah, and it's a shame because if they'd had a little bit more money, or even if it had been made at a slightly different time, it probably would have looked a little bit better. But I still yeah. appreciate the ambition that they had in trying to realise oh, all yeah, absolutely. environments and worlds. Yeah, because I'm not sure whether it's been improved or not on the Blu-ray, because I don't own a Blu-ray copy of this. I've only got a very old DVD copy, but I did notice that most of the optical shots, mm-hmm. the film goes very, very grainy. Yeah. Even so, I still... I can forgive it because it's doing so much right. Yeah. And even if it doesn't uh, actually work every single time, I appreciate that it's striving to do all these ambitious things. I mean, looking at a film with a critical eye this time as well, I did bring up a few things that do stick out to me now as well. And uh, despite how progressive I think Bill and Ted are and their vision of the future isn't, I mean, it's very 90s. It's a very 90s vision of the future, let's say. But the whole idea of everybody's united by their love of music and art and that type of thing, like, wonderful. That's very Star Trek. That'd fit Mm -hmm. right into some episode of The Next Generation and the original series. But there's also some very antiquated word usages used in this film as well. The F word gets thrown out a couple of times as well, Mm. which feels very noticeable now that it didn't Mm. when I was a kid. But now, yeah, it really sticks out to me. Yeah. Especially from characters that are as wholesome as Bill and Ted in a very dumb way. Yeah, I guess in that way, you just have to view it as a product of its time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something that's come up a lot in recent months, I think, especially. Speaking about that for a moment is, I understand what Warner Brothers did with Looney Tunes cartoons, where they released a statement before the film saying, you know, some of the ideas at play in this film are wrong and were wrong then, are still wrong now. And we want to acknowledge that before we continue with the show, you know let's place it in context and i think yeah do that with films like gone with the wind and stuff like that as well because no matter what no matter what we do films are always going to be a product of of its time and as such it's always going to have things that come in and out of date Uh, or i mean i say come in and out of date things that are always uh reapproached later on down the line not to say that racism is something that comes in and out of date (laughs) wow this is going to get cut this is so cut um (laughs) And I understand that with this is you do have to approach it with that context in mind. It wasn't right then, but you've still got to approach it that it was a product yeah. of its time in that way. Anyway. Anyway, bogus journey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got to say as well, uh, one thing that I wrote in my notes is that the English accents of the babes. Oh, yeah. Makes me laugh every time. They are totally not English babes playing those princesses. <laughs> like, we got into the battle of the bands. <laughs> It's different actresses playing the princesses this time around as well. In fact, I think there's different actresses playing the princesses in the new one as well. So every single film has a different actress. <laughs> Long may it continue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it does make me laugh that they, yeah, they're so obviously not English. <laughs> I couldn't remember if they were English even in the last one. No. They can always say in this one, oh, well, we're just copying the accents of the last film. Yeah. I mean, they had um, Jane Weedlin of the Go-Go's playing Joan of Arc in the last film so oh of course yeah I think the casting is fair game in this in these films <laughs> yeah I guess where to begin with Bill and Ted's bogus journey is the main question 
just to speak about it as well, this film was called Bill and Ted Go to Hell originally, mm. as we have mentioned. And you've mentioned that one of the scenes that scared you was with the robots. Yeah. And mine was with death. Mm-hmm. But I would say the part that really shook me when I was a kid was definitely when they went to hell. Yeah. Granny Preston, I think, oh is one of God. the uh, film's most terrifying creations. Yeah. And looking at Alex Winter as well, and looking at the films that he did afterwards, or film, <laughs> Freaked, which, yeah. again, Freaked is enjoying something of a resurgence online people are actually starting to ask for it to be re-released which is good but i remember seeing that when i was really young as well and now i can place that character in with alex winter's like aesthetic with the type of characters he likes to play because i didn't actually know it was him until much 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 yeah. much later yeah but now that i watch it i was like that is very much an alex winter character <laughs> and he does really nail it as he well does, because yeah. it, she is terrifying for the yeah. longest time i thought she was this horrible old woman <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean hell's depicted quite well in this film considering the budget yeah i do like the whole sequence in the in the corridors with all the different rooms and things like that, and when it's their own personal hell. It kind of reminds me of Alien 3 when it's in the corridors for some reason. Yeah, (laughs) well, I think there's a few different influences. I was was reading an article on Bill and Ted's Burgess Journey uh, last night. It name-checked a few different films in its depiction of hell. I think one of the the big ones that it mentioned was, uh, I mean, obviously the, the, the overall plot is very much influenced by The Terminator. Yeah. Which is obviously another Orion film. And then you've got elements of the seventh seal, which we've discussed before mm-hmm. with the, the character of death. And there, yeah, especially within these hell scenes, you've got like Hellraiser. Of course, is yeah. A, a not quite an obvious influence. And the, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari as well. I've actually written down as one of the things that I really appreciate about this film for the visual aesthetic for what Peter Hewitt brings to the film. And one of them is his uh, leaning on the German expressionism. That is very prominent through the hell scene, especially when they visit their own personal hells because you do have the like painted shadows and painted spotlights and that type of thing and um, everything's at weird angles. But I actually wrote, I'm glad that you've said that because one of the things I actually wrote was, has this been done in that way as a reference to German expressionism or as a reference to Tim Burton (laughs) which was very popular at the time as well but I think it feels like closer to just a German expressionism nod than it is a Tim Burton one. I would say so just given the background of Peter Hewitt himself that he's obviously fresh out of film school yeah so he's wanting to prove himself in that way so I think putting nods to very prestigious films like that uh, Mm -hmm. I mean this film is not chasing any trends (laughs) no 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 it's very much doing its own thing I mean I think this is why there's this battle that goes on and why the film's been overlooked in some ways and, and become a cult classic is that it's quite a non-commercial film Mm -hmm. when you actually break it down into its individual parts it's not a film that would play well for everybody yeah because it is so surreal at times but yeah i just love what it's doing and all the different ideas because again like the the hell sequence is only like 10 minutes in a 90 minute film it is I, i thought it was much longer yeah and even within that 10 minutes there's lots of different ideas at play And one of the things that I do really like about this film is that in many ways, it's always looking for the next joke as well. But it plays so many background things and introductions so straight in a contrasting kind of way that it works. I think that's why some parts of it still unsettle me as well. For instance, we have mentioned Granny Preston. That is 
it's funny as well, but it's also genuinely terrifying. Yeah. But also, when they first are introduced to hell, when they land on the rocks that so many other lost souls are working on in the background, everybody seems to be confined to their own individual rock to meet the devil. And everything that Bill and Ted are saying is rather funny, considering the circumstances. (laughs) But everybody in the background is like screaming in pain and agony, saying, it's not my fault, or whatever horrible thing that they've done. And it's like all the background is played as straight as it possibly can. And then you have Bill and Ted right in the middle of it. Just such a contrast. And I think that's what makes so much of this whole section of the film work as well. Yeah. It's because hell is genuinely quite hellish. Yeah, I think that that's what makes a lot of the comedy work is those contrasts where certain things are played very straight. And then it's like if you had a very serious movie scene. So, for example, it's like if Bill and Ted wandered onto the set of... Um, Don't say Schindler's List. Don't say Schindler's List. <laughs> for example, if Bill and Ted walked onto the set of The Green Mile or something like that. Yeah, definitely. And, yeah, it just has that juxtapositional comedy, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that Peter Hewitt can bring to the film as a British director as well. That I think that's what gives it a very different feel to excellent adventure where it's excellent adventure was directed by an american director and then you've got bogus journey which is a a british director making a film about this yeah and it it gives it a very different kind of vibe yeah absolutely and i think that's where a lot of this comedy works because i do think quite a lot of the especially the things involving death are very rooted in in british comedy rather than american comedy i would say yeah for some reason i always think of the fast show when i see death like i say that sketch right in the middle of it of him being challenged by bill and ted to play several games and losing every time yeah is a perfect sketch in and of itself but one of the things i love most about death is the fact that his introduction is so stark and terrifying in contrast to pretty much every moment after that his power as an authority figure is instantly diminished like they melvin him after his appearance (laughs) and from that moment like he's never ever as powerful as he is in that very first scene of his introduction yeah that's why he's scary in that moment and then as the film goes on it's diminished to such a point that he just becomes one of their friends one of the bandmates yeah i love that character journey for him oh yeah it's brilliant yeah i would say as well it's very uh monty python yes because i'd say that image of death obviously it's from the seventh seal but it does remind me a lot of um the death that they have in the meaning of life with the salmon moose (laughs) (laughs) it does remind me a little bit of that as well but what is it about the seventh seal in the 90s that these films that maybe not for kids but for young people teenagers and that like this and last action hero why is it with them making very overt references to the seventh seal why all of a sudden did films start doing that (laughs) why did it suddenly become a thing that the kids would get the only thing i can think of is is like home video or something like that because i think the late 80s and early 90s in particular were a very unique time where things on a a media consumption front were changing quite dramatically because yeah obviously for the longest time the only place that you could see films was in a cinema yes or on television at select times and the advent of home video which became way more prominent in the mid to late 80s rather than the early 80s people were able to watch films 
of their own volition uh, yeah. without having any other gatekeeping issues other than the actual release of the film on video and also being able to take things off the television as well. So I think that's why you do start to get a lot more film references in movies in general, I'd say. Yeah. I mean, I think before then you get sort of references to very major films, but I think it became a little bit more niche, I think, from uh, from this point onwards. And I guess on that level, you start to get more films like this that are made to be viewed several times in order to kind of pick up the references throughout as well, which I know that's something that obviously we see the likes of with Edgar Wright now where their kind of style flourishes because the home market is especially a thing now. Yeah. Because you can watch those films over and over again at your own content and pick out the points that you've never noticed before. I guess without the home video market, I'm not saying that we wouldn't have films like that, but they wouldn't be as easily to digest. Yeah, I guess in many ways, this is the beginning of that as well, in the likes of films like Bill and Ted. Yeah, I get the feeling that this was made for multiple rewatches as well. Yeah. Because there's always things I pick up on that's new every single time I watch it. Yeah, the thing that I picked on this time was the thing that made us realise that the people, the little family at the end that are watching their TV, makes me realise their English is that they keep their Marmite next to the television. <laughs> Oh, like I, I love those, <laughs> that. Made me laugh. I love those bits as well. That that's when you can tell that it's actually a British director, sort of yeah, showing a British family. Because I often find when American or non-English directors do it, they always get it wrong. Yeah. Well, I just love I love the bit when they're clapping at the end, and you've got William Sadler there in a dual role, um, <laughs> saying "quite good, quite, quite good,", good. <laughs> and like that's Britishness distilled to a single line. <laughs> They've literally just saved humanity from doom, yeah. from all of our music from being uh, ripped away from us and living in just abject misery. And our English response is, yeah, that was quite good. <laughs> well done. <laughs> yeah, it was all right, that, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, good old. Now on to work. <laughs> Not too bad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh God, I don't even know where to start with this film because there's so much in it yeah. that it's kind of bursting at the seams, really. I, I just, I'm genuinely flabbergasted as how they can fit so much into a 90-minute film because mm-hmm. we've not even talked about the story. No, we've kind of just talked about random sections mm. of the film for it because, I, I honestly, I don't know where to start. There's so much about this film, but yeah, let's let's lay some information about the story. I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, so the, the basic story is that we start the film in the future, which is very similar to how Excellent Adventure starts, because that also starts in the in the future times. It's something like the 2400s or 2600s or something like yeah. that. Yeah, and uh, I'd say rather unusually, we are introduced first to our principal villain, who is uh, Denomalus, uh, Chuck Denomalus. <laughs> which is Ed Solomon backwards. Yeah. Yeah. Chuck Denomalous. I know. I absolutely love the revelation at the end because they do this whole cliche with, with George Carlin's character, Rufus, yeah. saying, you know, my old teacher. And you, you, they do that cliche, my old master. <laughs> and it just turns out he's been, he was his gym teacher and, and a sit up <laughs> champion. <laughs> I've got to say as well, Joss Ackland is brilliant in this oh, role. Apparently, it's, it's great. He only did this film for a bat. As a bet, <laughs> <with> yeah. <laughs> Honestly, um, and he also, I mean, Joss Ackland, everybody knows from his most famous line, Diplomatic, diplomatic Immunity. immunity. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, sorry, I'll let you continue. So yeah, he's with his gimp mask brigade. <laughs> <laughs> I don't 
for for people that want to get rid of like rock music, they look like they would fit right in with some kind of goth cult. Oh, totally. <laughs> I think that's almost like the joke there, isn't it? It's like oh, absolutely. He's trying to overthrow this society, but he's just as self-centered as anyone else. I mean, I love the book that he gives out, <laughs> the greatest man in history <laughs> yeah. book that he has. Yeah, so the general idea is that this anomalous character is going to hijack a time-travelling phone booth, which was established in the first film, and created autonomous robots of Bill and Ted. Your nightmare fuel. Yeah, my nightmare fuel. And he's going to send those back in time to disrupt events. So this is um, the second key event in Bill and Ted's life following the, the history test. This is the Battle of the Bands. And he's going to send this robot Bill and Ted back to kill Bill and Ted and change the course of history. Yeah. And that is the crux of the plot. <laughs> that is it. Yeah, that's what begins us on our journey. I mean, it's still got the time traveling element. Like they keep that. This is what I was mentioning earlier that they still keep the time traveling element. And it's almost set up in a way that you think that it's going to be a film with more time traveling elements included. But we actually find out rather quickly that the journey that these characters are going on is one that inv- <laughs> involves the spiritual world rather than the physical one there's a bit of fun time travel hijinks towards the end but yeah the the time travel is is very much a a minimal element in the film i actually think as you mentioned is there is some hijinks at the end but it's done in a smarter way because it's done without really anybody ever actually time traveling on screen (laughs) yeah yeah it's more than just having a battle of talking about time traveling in fact that whole time travel hijinks at the end where they say you know if i prevail i'll go back in time and, and add this cage and add this sandbag and gun and everything (laughs) for a a film series that's so heavily influenced by doctor who yeah right down to the phone booth there is actually a there's a spoof episode of doctor who that was produced in the late 90s which is a comic relief is this the joanna lumley one yes doctor who and the curse of fatal death with uh rowan atkinson and jonathan price playing the master and it's a moffat as well yeah it's a moffat script yeah yeah and pretty much half the episode is devoted to this idea that they'll go back in time and basically the idea with that one is that they go back in time and bribe the architect of this building that they're in to add different doors and trap doors and they keep adding them <laughs> at all times and it's it's really funny but yeah it's i'm pretty sure that like this did it first yeah so um <laughs> yeah i think you're right yeah it, it deserves a credit yeah <laughs> i also like during that scene as well that joss ackland is denouement is getting melvined by death <laughs> but actually Actually, he likes it. He, he, he discovers something about himself. Yeah. <laughs> that, that he loves his arsehole being torn from top to bottom. Mm. Who wouldn't love that? Who, who would have thought with all that gimp stuff going on? <laughs> yeah. All that bondage gear. And I, I like the way that it's actually dealt with, where it's like, oh, actually. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> he gets Melvin. It's like, oh, pain, actually. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Can you imagine that being a thing, though? That being your kink? Oh, yeah. Can you just really just drag my undies right up? That's what needed to happen all along. <laughs> yeah. None of this would have happened if he'd been Melvin at the start. No, no, he just had to be true with himself. Yeah. That's all. But yeah, so I did read some information about deleted scenes going right back to the beginning. Yeah. That the evil robot Uzzers were actually supposed to be a little bit more violent in the original film. I think yeah. when they captured the babes, one of them was supposed to punch one of the babes, according to the, oh, uh, really? the notes. Yeah, And there was supposed to be more hijinks involving these suits that they were wearing. At one point in the film, they were supposed to be disguised as each other, like they were wearing their skin over the separate models. Oh, right, okay. I don't know to what purpose, but in a couple of shots in the film, you can still see it. 
but I wasn't able to notice it this time around. Well, I'd have to go back and rewatch it, I think. To see. Yeah. I mean, I know both films were pared down. I know the original edit of Excellent Adventure ran to two hours, 25 minutes. <laughs> and there was there was whole sequences and subplots and things that they cut out of the film. Like there's a whole, there's something apparently on the British VHS, there's a clip of a, uh, a prom night where the Bill and Ted take the princesses to the prom. Yeah. And that whole sequence has been cut out of the film. And I know in this film, there's a whole sequence where the evil robot Uzzers replicate all the nightmare scenes from hell and Bill and Ted have to overcome them. Yes, I did read about that. I do think, I understand the the purpose to get a film down to 90 minutes as well. A film of this ilk, but also I understand that with comedy as well, it's one of the few genres I would say where its longest form is not always its best. It's a film yeah. that is as often worked out in the editing bay as it is in the, on the script because you're... You're editing to timing and sometimes things don't play out the way that you expected them to compared to how they played out on the page and that type yeah. of thing. So I understand that with comedy, especially with like you've got a script that's supposed to be jokes every minute, that there's going to be a lot of chaff that falls to the wayside. There's going to be stuff yeah. that doesn't work and it's it's not right for us to view that stuff. But I do think that that scene, when I read about it, I was like, ah, oh, now that I know it, there is an arc in that film that's just missing now with that, yeah. that conclusion. And it does seem strange to me as well. I'd say as a, as a minus point for the film, and I'm not sure whether it's supposed to take place at that particular moment in the film. Yeah. But I do feel like the robot Evil Bill and Ted are defeated rather easily by the good robot Uzzers yeah. in the concept. And I'm not sure whether that whole sequence was meant to take place around that area or not. Those evil robot Uzzers are downright suicidal because they welcome their death with such ease. They're like, they, they show their chins as well. And like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's no fight whatsoever. It's just no. the appearance of the good robots turn up and then their heads get knocked <laughs> off. That's yeah. it. They just go, catch you later, Bill and Ted. <laughs> I mean, it's a very minor point because to it, be honest, it is. it's a comedy film at the end of the day and it's completely ridiculous by that point anyway. So it doesn't really matter. And you still get all the stuff with Denomalous afterwards, which is quite fun. Yeah. So it's by and the by, but I generally, I think there are a couple of bits and bobs there that are missing. Yeah. But yeah, um, the thing I really like at the beginning of the film, which I think is an amazing gag, is the, the conceit of Missy. <laughs> when they have that party, yeah, they have that line of like, I can't believe your mom divorced your dad and married mine. <laughs> and and uh, you just got that shot of Bill's dad yeah. just crying, looking disheveled. It's hilarious. It's just one shot in the film as well. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Actually, speaking of the dads as well, I actually uh, really like Ted's dad in this film when he's possessed oh, yeah. by... Yeah. He, he really embodies Keanu Reeves really quite well. Yeah. Hal Landon Jr., that's his name. Whereas I would say the impression is so good that the other guy doing Bill yes. is not hitting it at all. And not like, what? Whatsoever. I was that's going to mention, the, um, that's for an unfortunate side effect of, yeah. of his performance. Yeah. <laughs> Although that that is the dude from Total Recall. It is, yeah. And I think arachnophobia. Yeah. Roy Brocksmith. Yeah, he's forever ingrained in my mind from Total Recall and yeah. Arachnophobia. For those not in the know, he is the guy that tries to tempt Arnold Schwarzenegger out of his dream. Yes, that's the one. Yeah. I think that scene's actually really good. It's got a great gag as well with um Throughout Bill and Ted series, you've got the air guitar, but I love like the Santana type <laughs> plucking guitar that he has. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Where it's... laughs> 
Well, I always think about the guitar. Can everybody else hear that? <laughs> I don't know. Because I love the fact that the robots do it as well. Because <laughs> it's objectively shown. It's never from a subjective no. point of view. It's an objective point that they always reveal that this... It seems like other people can hear it. Yeah. But I, I think that how Landon thing works so well is that the character that he's playing is such an emotionally muted and staunch character that yeah. when he goes into doing the Ted stuff, it's just like, whoa, <laughs> that's a completely different person yeah it is it works so well and it's a shame that the other guy just can't get to that level because it would have been even funnier if uh, the other guy <laughs> got into the same the same headspace so to speak yeah <laughs> i gotta talk as well about our lead pairing alex winter and keanu reeves yeah keanu reeves obviously gets has gotten throughout his career quite a lot of criticism for always playing ted-like characters that are always a little bit whoa yeah to the point that He's often been described as wooden, but I've always found Keanu Reeves rather endearing as well. He's not exactly Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah, and in a strange way, I always find Ted to be one of Keanu Reeves's more animated roles Yeah, as well, because he so often plays it very, very wooden. Yeah. I mean, even as Neo, he's much more straight and serious than he is doing Ted or something like that. I mean, Incredibly so. You've got things like The Day the Earth Stood Still as well, which are That's very, it, yeah. very wooden. That's it. I think it works for... The the Matrix so well because he's our way into the film. It's like that Luke Skywalker thing where he is the person that we're able to project ourselves onto as an introduction into this world. However, in something like The Day the Earth Stood Still, that doesn't have that type of element on its side, so it comes across yeah. as a lot more just frozen yeah. and emotionless. And uh, the less said about Bram Stoker's Dracula, the better. <laughs> oh no, I want to do a whole episode about oh. that. Just on, oh, not no. even the accent. I want to do it on his curtains because that that hairstyle. Something oh, yeah, else. some serious curtains in that film. <laughs> but yeah, I'm pretty sure around this time he was not enjoying doing Bill and Ted. I'm pretty sure I've seen behind the scenes footage of him being an absolute dick on set. Oh, really? I think he had a a problem with being Ted. Yeah. At this point, I I feel like for the longest time he he did not want to be known as the guy he played Ted. He had this vision of his gravestone saying, Keanu Reeves played Ted. Yeah. And I think it took until The Matrix for that image to go away. And for him to kind of reconcile with it as well, yeah. I guess. We hear about that happening with many actors as well. We've spoken about it on this podcast before, about Steve Coogan as well, I think. Mm. He was somebody that really kind of revolted against the idea of being Alan Partridge for so long that in the end he just kind of accepted it. And because of that, he's enjoyed this new resurgence of his career as well. And I wouldn't say the same is going to happen of Keanu Reeves because he's never really been away. He's he's kind of enjoyed a resurgence since John Wick yeah. was a breakthrough hit again. I would say the thing that made me realise that he's definitely put that feeling to bed is that when they announced that they were actually going to actually film Bill and Ted 3, which had been um, on the cards for many, many years and we thought mm. it would never happen... It's one of those films that was in development hell for a long, long time. Yeah, it was. Funding and, and the fact that it actually started shooting it was like miraculous in of itself. I always said I would never believe it would actually get made until yeah. I was sat in the cinema watching the film. But I think the general cathartic thing, I when I first saw the, the on-set photo, the very first on-set photo, and he'd shaved his face... Yes, yeah. I would say, right, he's now comfortable with doing this part because yeah. I had every expectation that he would be doing the role of Ted with a beard, John Wick yep. style. I think we all did as well. Because that's the look that he had for a long yeah. time. And the fact that he shaved his face, that it felt very cathartic that, yeah, he's now comfortable with playing that role. 
yeah, he's making a statement. It's not just going to be like he's not going to just look like he does in John Wick or anything like that because you know it's, it's an effort to grow a beard sometimes, depending on who you are. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I like it's there's a statement to be made. The fact that he's shaved and he said the you know this character it's a different character. It's not just something that I'm doing on the side while I do my other films like Matrix Four and John Wick Seven, Eight, Nine, Ten. It's like, this is just as important to me. Yeah. I do like Keanu Reeves as well. I, I always have done. I do find him really quite endearing. And again, it's all about getting him for the right role, the right part. But he has a lot of charisma, I think, as well, that shines through. He's just very affable. But also, Alex Winter is someone that I don't think has ever really got the credit that he deserves. No. I think he's a really solid actor as well and really quite fun and comedic and as mentioned, I saw Freaked when I was a kid, and I always found that to be really quite wild. And I'd say of the two Bill and Ted films, this one feels closest to his kind of idea of comedy as well. I've always thought that we should see more of Alex Winter in films, but I think he kind of just gave up on filmmaking for a while, it seems. Yeah, yeah, he went into other areas. Was he a producer or something like that? I can't remember exactly what he did. Oh, I can't actually remember myself. I think he went into other areas of the film industry anyway. Of the film industry? Yeah. I know he was interested in special effects, judging by the likes of Freakton and this. like He was interested in a, in donning very heavy prosthetic gear. <laughs> but it seems like he does have a very uh, strong interest there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I guess we can't really talk about Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter without actually mentioning William Sadler. Yeah, he's the other main part in this film. I mean, he's <laughs> even on the bloody poster. Yeah. For me, William Sadler as the Grim Reaper is probably one of my favourite characters in film of all time. Oh, God, yeah. It's just absolute brilliance <laughs> from start to finish to be honest i don't know what it is andy but every time i watch it there's a few mannerisms that he does that i see and i go that really reminds me of andy <laughs> and it always has you know the moment as well where bill and ted meet the babes at the gig and and they have a kiss and then it cuts to death for a little reaction shot where he's like oh <laughs> it always reminds me of you and i don't know why mate but yeah, this is just one of the best characters that William Sadler's ever played. I love William Sadler as an actor anyway, but this is definitely like one of the best that he's done. Yeah. And I'm so glad to know that they're doing the uh, the third film in the series and it's going to include the Grim Reaper as a character. Yeah. I was really worried that for a while it wasn't going to be included whatsoever and he would just be kind of like relegated to Bogus Journey. Yeah, yeah. But I'm glad that they're actually acknowledging that these characters have visited the afterlife. Yeah, I think uh, William Sadler's warned that his part is not as big as in Bogus mm. Journey, but I kind of expected that anyway. Yeah. But he did actually say sort of up front that he is in it significantly, but not to the same extent that he is in Bogus Journey. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's kind of by and the by because it's, it's a completely different story. And, and the character of the Grim Reaper was is very much central to the story of this film. So it's very much to be expected. Otherwise, they'd be making the same film. So Yeah, absolutely. And like, we've spoken about hell in this film and its depiction of hell. But he takes the characters eventually to heaven. Yeah. And I will say that heaven is probably the blandest, whitest place I've ever seen. Yeah, it seemed like conservative heaven. <laughs> it really did. <laughs> like, if we actually look at it from a, in terms of heaven and hell standard with this film, it's... Uh, it's not looking good for any of us. No. I mean, I'd say out of all the worlds that they depict in this film, I'd say Heaven is probably the least successfully realised, but yeah. I think that's just down to the, the lack of budget that they had, I'd say. Yeah, and apparently like the way in which they show it in this film is a reference to a matter of life and death. Yeah. I think yeah. to the point that they actually have visual references to um, 
David Niven. Yeah. And uh, like there's a statue of him in there as well at some yeah, point. Yeah, there's, there's a statue of, I mean, I think this is where Peter Hewitt's film credentials come into play. Is, so yeah, yeah, on one side, there's a statue of David Niven. And on the other side, there's a statue of Michael Powell. Yeah. But it's also where we get our first introduction to the uh, the third act's wildest element of all, which is station. Station. <laughs> oh my gosh, mate. I have so many questions. <laughs> you, I, you text me last night about it. Yeah, they are like their, their suits are ninety percent arse crack. It's I know they say at one point like, and you have an excellent butt or something like that about station. But like when you look at the little versions of them and they turn around, they are all arse. Yeah, I actually wrote like when station are on screen, I don't know where to look. It's like I've just walked into my granddad's room while he's getting changed. And instead of letting me leave, he's made me sit in the corner while he asks me nonchalantly about my day. You know, <laughs> no, that's what it feels like. Oh, yeah. I feel like I've just unlocked a memory there. Oh, Sorry. I just, I, I actually wrote that line down when they mentioned the butt. It's like, you've got an excellently huge Martian butt. And then I, I loved a bit afterwards when Death goes, my, my butt is good also. Uh, I work out all of the time. Reaping burns a lot of calories. <laughs> When I was a kid, I always resented that line because it made me imagine William Sadler's ass. <laughs> always made me feel uncomfortable. We've seen William Sadler's ass many times, anyway. Oh yeah, he's a friend of the family. Yeah, <laughs> it's the first thing you see it like of him in Die Hard too. It is. So... Oh yeah, you see more than his ass in that film. Oh yeah. <laughs> he's putting his cock and balls into that film as well I like in that film how it's just like lightly silhouetted as well like it's just got this rim of light just around one hanging ball yeah <laughs> like it makes me think Rennie Harlan and his cinematographer have really oh, put the effort in there <laughs> yeah I'd say I mean, going to Die Hard 2 as well which is the role he was probably best known for prior to doing this film because he'd done it the year before because he's probably best known for doing Shawshank Redemption. And The Mist now as well. Like, uh, But yeah, Shawshank is like the, the film everybody goes back to. But Die Hard 2 is the, the odd one out because he's probably the most restrained in that film of anything he's ever done. Definitely, yeah. He's such a charismatic guy in real life that it's strange that they... Um, I remember even reading a DVD review of, um, you know, when you used to get those little Empire DVD review books or Total Film. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it reviewed the DVD of Die Hard 2 and the special features and there was like the documentary. And it mentioned that in just those interviews in the documentary, William Sadler was 100 million times more animated than he was in the actual film. (laughs) <laughs> like more of his charisma and everything came through than yeah. in the actual film. I guess it's the idea of like playing in Hans Gruber's shadow that they've decided that we're not going to be able to best that in terms of like how theatrical we can make this character. So let's go the complete opposite direction. Yeah. And I do think it probably hampers the enjoyment somewhat. I'd really like William Sadler, but he could be doing so much more for that film. But yeah, going back to um Bill and Ted anyway. <laughs> we, were yeah. about, we were talking about Station. We were, but I think Die Hard is definitely a film that you may hear on this podcast in the oh, future. Totally. But yes, let's let's go back to Station from it. Right, I have a question. Why do they merge into this giant ball of you know you know when you've got like a um like when you've got a, the flu and you yeah. wake up every morning, you've got to hack that horrible like lump of bloody yeah. snot up. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. what he turns into when they jump together. Yeah, <laughs> why does that happen? It's a it's a Martian thing. Why, why do they have to create a new giant station? The giant one makes me far more uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, he's a bit creepier to look at. <laughs> he really is. I suppose it's just the idea that the two elements combine to make a super element, 
and then they can separate again afterwards. I suppose so, yeah. They separate off-screen later in the film. Although, I'd say it gives a a slight... I wouldn't say a plot hole, but a slight problem for me logistically. Like, wouldn't two of them build the things much quicker? That's exactly what I was about to mention. So you could have one station for each robot. I love their introduction with the the charades. Yeah, it's great. And I I just love... I love... Einstein, Smokey is the bandit. (laughs) But I just love Death's interjection of Butch and Sundance, the earliest. (laughs) (laughs) That character, like... Every single thing that comes out of his mouth and everything that he does is absolutely brilliant. It's golden. Like, we've not it, even it, talked about the fucking games yet, which no. is like the best two out of three. There's some just immortal lines there that he says, like, you know, the one I said at the beginning, you have you sunk, sunk my, battleship. my battleship. The Cluedo or Clue if you're in America. <laughs> Colonel Master did it in the study with the candlestick. <laughs> The the general subversion of that whole situation and the character and, and everything. Well, that's what makes that whole scene work. As I say, you could take it out of film completely and it would still just work perfectly. But just the whole conceit of the same character from the Seventh Seal with all of the reverence that comes with that character and all of the weight that comes with that particular character. You know, challenging people when they face death to play a game that nobody has ever won. Which is life itself. That's what life is. Yeah. And then him coming across characters that are really so dumb that they pick a game, not chess, not checkers or something like that, something that requires thought, but games like Cluedo and And that little electric football one as well. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) just the very notion of that, that in fact he's just overcome by complete dumbness of these characters. Yeah. It's a perfect scene. It's a perfect scene. I think that's my favourite scene in the whole film. Oh, it is. It's like, you can take that scene out and it would play whatever. Yeah. Like, it's completely timeless. Because, I mean, obviously a lot of the rest of this film is actually rooted in the time and place, but that particular scene, because of the the art direction of the the location and and everything. And those games that they play as well are all timeless as well. So you can play that to an audience today and they would still (laughs) find it funny. What would be the game that you would challenge death to? Um, That you think, this is the one I have the most chance of winning. Game of Life? (laughs) Yeah, nice. (laughs) Hungry Hippos. I'm quite good at that. Hungry Hippos. There's a good shout I'm trying to think what mine would be. I was about to say Mouse Hunt, but nobody's ever actually played that game, I don't think. Mouse Trap. Mouse Trap, sorry, but I don't think anybody's ever actually played that game. Everybody gets as far as setting it up, and then, <laughs> and then they just let it go. It takes so long to sound that you're fed yeah. up by the end of it. Buckaroo. That's what I was challenging to, yeah. yeah. Have a game of Buckaroo. <laughs> Jenga. <laughs> Kaplunk. Kaplunk? How good was Kaplunk? <laughs> anyway, a little glimpse behind the curtain of our childhood. Yeah. Talking about Station as well, one thing that I did find out this watch through was Tony Cox actually played one of the uh, versions of Station, an actor who appeared in a Willow previously, and obviously everybody knows him from Bad Santa. He's, yeah, yeah. He's really great, really funny actor, but he did seem to get a, a start playing... Uh, well, as most little people do, in like prosthetic roles for films. Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to think what else we can say about this because there's, there's so many great moments in this film. Yeah, like... and, and the thing is, I think like we've talked about it, but I don't want to really... Everybody's seen this film that's listened to the podcast. Everybody has seen it. But even so, I, I don't really want to get into anything that's really going to just ruin the film for them because yeah, yeah. the joy of this is just watching it and letting it wash over you. I will say one last thing that I wanted to add is just as a criticism on my part mm. is that the only thing that doesn't work whatsoever for me is the inclusion of Pam Greer because you don't have Pam Greer in your film 
And I think that the the way in which they bring her character arc to a close is really quite disrespectful to Pam Greer and someone of her yeah. stature. It's like <laughs> it's she's a bit in it Scooby Doo, isn't it? It it really is, and <laughs> it's like it's Pam Greer. She needs to yeah. be if she's going to be part of Bill and Ted's bogus journey. Make her a role. Make her a genuine place, not just so she can unzip at some point and reveal that she's white guy George Carlin. <laughs> <laughs> It's bad for you, folks. It's bad for you. <laughs> but yeah, that was my only criticism watching it this time because I'd never yeah. realized before that it was Pam Greer until this watch. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit. And then I remembered at the end, oh no. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so that's my only criticism. Otherwise, I would say it's just a great film. It's well worth watching. Which I guess, yeah. um, do you have anything left to add before we move over to the stats and facts? Uh, the only thing I've got uh, of note is all the, um, the Steve Vai stuff yes. towards the end. So, yeah, this film has a very distinct and of-its-time soundtrack, which is very much rooted in the kind of rock music that was in vogue in America at that time. And um, one of the big things that happens at the end of the film is before we get into the God gave rock and roll to you section. I'm so glad you're mentioning this because this was on my list as well. We have this huge guitar solo. It's actually played by Steve Vai. And yeah. incidentally, when Bill and Ted come back out of the phone booth, having had their 16 months of intense guitar training, obviously <laughs> Bill very much looks like a member of ZZ Top and Ted looks like Steve Vai looked at that particular time. Yeah. So they had this bit of music and I think he also contributes to the Reaper rap, which is in the end credits of the film. It is, yeah. But those pieces of music were only added at the 11th hour. It's actually remarkable to me that it was because... That version of God Gave Rock and Roll with that guitar solo intro is by far my favourite version of that song. And there's no officially released version of it with that Steve Vai intro. Yeah, I've got it in a Kiss album without the intro, but not with the exactly, intro. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so I was going to mention as well another band that makes a full appearance in this film that I love as well. Primus. Primus. I love that Primus. they're the band that they beat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's honestly Primus is one of my favorite bands. Just simply, even if it's just for Les Claypool, he's yeah. simply one of the greatest bassists. That you know, you never really look at a band and say the bassist of that band is really good. Yeah, he plays a bass like he's the lead guitar. Oh, I'd say level forty-two, but that's an indifferent case entirely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, to be honest, I've never got around to listening to Primus. And then when the, the film came around again, I was like, oh, yeah, I must listen to Primus now. They're one of those bands that I just have never got around to listening to. So I will I will do this time around. Definitely. Um, if I would recommend a start for Primus, it would be um, Tales from the Punchbowl was the first album I heard. And we've obviously got Faith No More in here as well. So Yes, yeah. Which uh, everything that Mike Patton touches is normally pretty great. So <laughs> I love how they refer to him with Sir. Oh yeah, so that's the um, oh it's the um, it's the guitarist, isn't it, from Faith No More that actually makes the appearance? I think that was originally meant to be um, Tom Petty at the beginning. I think yeah, it was originally meant to be Tom Petty. Oh, was it? So he's going to be Sir Tom Petty. Yeah, but I don't think they could get him. Although I'd say the the band reference is probably more relevant to the characters than Tom Petty. Yeah. Uh, shall I move into the uh, stats and facts for the film? Yeah, yeah, because I think this further influences the Bill and Ted debate as yeah. it rages on. And this new film's only going to make it worse. Yep. I mean, it depends if it's good or not. It could be absolute shit, but um, we've had our fingers burnt before with these things when we've done um, 
tie-in episodes. So I'm not going to say anything about the new film because I've done that before no. with, with other films and then been gravely disappointed. Yeah. The Bourne Legacy one springs to mind. <laughs> we yeah. picked up that film so much, uh, Jason Bourne, and um, yeah, oh dear. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so just to go into the stats and facts about this film as well, this is the part of the podcast where we normally go over the budget and the critical reception and as Andy's just said, it may let us into a couple of ideas as to why the debate rages on about whether or not which of these films is the better one. So the budget for this film is an increase over the uh, previous film's six to ten million dollar budget. This is a twenty million dollar budget, mm-hmm. which is a, a much larger increase, but it's still not exactly the craziest of budgets out there, even for no. the time. Terminator 2 had just been made for over $100 million as the first film, so that kind of sets your expectations as to what kind of film this is. Yeah. It's a sub-mid-budget level movie. And it's opening weekend. It opened to number two, and it opened with $10 million. Weekend notables, I would say, films that were released at the same time. You had Terminator 2, Judgment Day, in number one. It's, mm-hmm. It was its third weekend with $14 million. And other films that were also released were 101 Dalmatians on a re-release, Boys in the Hood, Regarding Henry, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Point Break, another Keanu Reeves film, Naked Gun 2.5, City Slickers, and Dying Young, a film that I have no desire to see. Um, That's a very strong week. Incredibly so, yeah. Of films that have lasted for an awful long time. We very rarely get rosters that look like that. Terminator 2 is regarded as a classic now. You got 101 Dalmatians re-release. Regarding Henry, was that the J.J. Abrams film that he did before he became a... I'm sure it's a J.J. Abrams film that bombed. Mm. Uh, But yeah, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Point Break, Naked Gun. Even Naked Gun 2.5 is still regarded as one of the better ones. Oh, yeah. Yeah, And City Slickers. My God, that's a really strong weekend. Yeah. And the overall box office, I only have the information in regards to the North American box office. It came to $38 million overall, so just under what the previous film had made, which I think was around the $40-plus million mark. Mm. Okay, and in regards to the critics, the Rotten Tomatoes score is at 54% with a 5.93 average rating. Just to set your expectations, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure also had a somewhat mixed reception at the time as well. And the consensus for this film is Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey has the same stars and cheerfully the same wacky sense of humour as its predecessor, but they prove a far less effective combination the second time round, which I disagree with wholeheartedly. Completely, yeah. I think it has the same stars, but I think the sense of humour is far different this time around and darker this time around. If you look at the Rotten Tomatoes score for Excellent Adventure, it's actually 80%. Yes, the information I was taking about how it was received was more so at the time. Because judging by the Wikipedia page, I had a whole section say that it was a mixed reception for yeah, the film yeah. initially. It does seem like the first film, at least, has been reappraised. They were both mixed on, on release, but in terms of the... Because obviously Rotten Tomatoes for these films is, I'd say, slightly irrelevant because it's, yeah. it's so far removed from the original release. But even now they are quite polarised. Yes, and that is reflected in the audience score as well on Rotten Tomatoes. So even the audience score is 56% which is a 3.41 out of 5 average rating. And the IMDb score is 6.3 out of 10. So yeah, this is a, it's like a middling response for a film that I actually think is top to bottom pretty damn solid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with very few weak links. 
I would say that someone that's on our side, though, is Lloyd Bradley at Empire Magazine for our Critics' Choice Review. He doesn't give the film a crazy high rating. He still only gives it three out of five. But he says, perhaps even smarter than the original, as it expands the potential for the surreal and ties up all loose ends, managing quite remarkably to give its own pointlessness a purpose, will also appeal to fans of Douglas Adams' novels. I really agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Completely. It's weird that it's a 3 out of 5, because that reads like a 4 out of 5 review to me. I read the review previously. It does, yeah. That's the information I have in regards to the stats and facts. So where does that leave us? I guess, as mentioned, I just want to go over once more. You mentioned something previously about the next film coming out. So we don't want to uh, say what we think it's going to be. It could be good, it could be bad. But what's your feelings about Bill and Ted Face the Music, which could be out in a week's time or seven years' time? Yeah. We might need a time machine to bloody yeah. see it. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm just quietly cautious with it because although it's got a lot of goodwill behind it and the original writers and everything, belated sequels are often a very tricky thing because we have to understand that the original Bill and Ted's were made and released very close to each other and are very much of their time and place. And trying to recreate that in a belated sequel is sometimes incredibly difficult. Yeah. So I am very much going to reserve judgment to uh, when I eventually see it in uh, 10 years' time. <laughs> I'm I'm of the same place. I'm quietly optimistic because I like mm. the people that are involved in the film. Yeah, and I, I like the trailer. I like the trailer, and I like the director that they've got on board, and I still mm. think that they're doing something different with this film where... Like, the first one had them travelling through time. The second film had them travelling through the spiritual world. And in this one, we have them actually confronting themselves through time. It looks like there's some dimensional stuff going on there as well. Like, alternate versions of Bill and Ted and stuff. I know that we've always had in previous ones that they see a version of themselves, whether it's uh, them in the future or robot them, but they've never really, like confronted the many different versions that they could possibly be and that seems to be what this is leaning into a little bit yeah i like that as a premise but as with all these films where it's uh 20 30 years later it's best to always approach them with a touch of caution Mm. but uh, yeah I'm, i'm quietly optimistic after seeing the trailer now i think the one thing that's made me quietly optimistic is the fact that both alex winter and keanu reeves have liked the script for an awful long time and the, and the only reason it's out so late is that it's taken an awful long time to get the funding yeah and everybody together to actually well, do it, it it took keanu reeves becoming a star again yeah and that was the moment when it all clicked because for a period of time the keanu reeves just wasn't as bankable as he was previously and yeah, then john yeah. wick came out mm. and suddenly he's a star again it does seem like this is a film where he's cashing in his power to make. Yeah. That's what gives me hope as well for Keanu Reeves, as you mentioned. This film seems like it matters for him. Yeah. Okay, so that's our episode of Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. I do hope you've enjoyed it. One thing I want to mention this time as well, though, is uh, we're looking for more likes and subscriptions for our podcast as well. Maybe a couple of reviews if you really like what we're doing here. Maybe leave us a review on iTunes because it really helps us grow as a podcast. But next week, we'll be moving from the hellish world of Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey to the hellish world of Birdemic. (laughs) And also Hitchcock's The Birds. We're actually doing something of a double bill (laughs) in many ways. So it's two beaks for the price of one. I love how you mentioned Birdemic before The Birds. As well. I, well, I thought like, I better, you know, lead more strongly. Lead with a yeah. stronger film and then yeah. go oh, into, yeah, you know, completely, yeah. I mean, yeah, anybody these days watching The Birds is going to think, oh, Birdemic ripoff. The Alfred Hitchcock, such a hack. 
in a world in which we have birdemic, do we really need the birds? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but until then, it's bye from myself. And uh, bye from me. And I'm just going to end with eloquent words from the Grim Reaper. So, you might be a king or a little street sweeper, but sooner or later, you'll dance with the Reaper. But uh, whatever you do, please don't die before the next episode. Oh, no. <laughs> we need the listens. Thank you for listening. You want